Hello and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Reed. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Aquarium Co-op, the premier online source for your freshwater aquarium needs. Aquarium Co-op offers the best products available on the market to date. From my personal go-to fish food of extreme krill flakes to Fritz Complete Water Conditioner, you can be assured Aquarium Co-op is only carrying the best. And let's not forget that Aquarium Co-op has a massive selection of live aquarium plants to choose from. From Anubius to Valcinaria, there are always so many options for you to plan your next community tank or aquascape. And right now, I would encourage you to check out a relatively new plant to the lineup, Cryptropica. It grows so full and bushy, it has easily become one of my favorites in my 75-gallon community tank. And as a disclaimer, I am an employee of Aquarium Co-op, but more than that, I'm still a huge fan and customer. Now, on to the interview. Today's date is Tuesday, February 18th, 2020. 2020? 2020. My guest today is Bentley Pascoe. Bentley is a longtime friend of the podcast, having been the guest for episode 17 way back on June 1st, 2018. It's been quite some time since Bentley and I have had a chance to talk fish for an extended period of time, so I figured it'd be good to bring you all along for the ride. So Bentley, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Randy. It's it's good to chat. It's been a little while. Hey, other than that little uh, trip up on the 2020 thing, uh, that actually was not <laughs> not a terrible uh, not intro the worst intro. Read. Yeah, yeah, you know. And I think it's been uh, I think that episode in China that I filmed was actually the last podcast interview that that I had recorded, and it's been it's been like three months since then. So yeah, you know, it's like riding you're, a bike. You're a busy fellow. You're a busy fellow. <laughs> Yeah, so there is not really too much of a rhyme or reason for this uh, for this conversation, other than just you and I to to talk fish, catch up, see what's going on in uh, each other's respective fish rooms. More so your fish room than my fish room, but you know you're you're always welcome to ask me questions, and you know we can keep the the conversation oh. and the dialogue going. Uh, and and I will say there is a disclaimer that um, you know a whole part of not only you know just wanting to connect with Bentley again, but testing out a new method of recording the podcast. Um, there's been some software changes, and so now I'm trying actually a different method to uh, conduct and record the podcast so hopefully the audio doesn't turn out like dog poo um, and it's something passable that people can appreciate and listen to i am i am more hoping that my mic doesn't terribly pick up my dog chewing on his 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 chew toy in the background you know let's let's talk about are we talking about the corgi yeah dude like <laughs> so um you know classic uh Aquarius podcast digression off of uh fish. we talk about non-fish <laughs> yeah, let, let's spend like a minute and talk about your corgi dude because that's like one of the when i worked at amazon you know seeing there's a good number of people that had corgis and that's just like a dog that just would light up my day anytime i'd see they a corgi are, in the office they're incredibly popular in the seattle area and what's funny is despite them being super popular I went on about a six-month journey to find a breeder to get this dog. And and a lot of people will say, well, you should get a shelter dog. Every other dog I've owned through my life, and I've had a lot of dogs, has always been a shelter dog. This was the only case where I've ever gone to a breeder, and it was specifically because my, my lady loves corgis, has never had a puppy, let alone a corgi. So it was an opportunity... Like I went through uh, a friend who's in the fish club, uh, his corgis had had puppies, but I was outside that window. And then uh, he like went to the breeder. He got his dogs from originally and she didn't have anything. So he, and I just like down this chain, basically suggested this person it's in gig Harbor, which is not terribly far from where I am. Cause I'm in the South side of Seattle, but it's still a little bit of a haul and uh, it timed up just right. So that when the day, 
the corgi came home was her birthday. Oh, nice. That's yeah, so good, that's some pretty good timing. Uh, very lucky timing because there were, she had two different litters, so she had her, her one her boy and then two different females that she works with, and it was like one would be ready Christmas, like the day before Christmas Eve, so the twenty third, and the other was her birthday, which is New Year's Eve. Um, and I was just kind of like, well, pick a pattern, honey. <laughs> and, uh, she, she chose the one that was on her birthday and he's a rambunctious little three month old at this point. Yeah. That, um, your, your post, man, that thing looks super adorable. So the, hopefully, oh, the, next, time, hopefully the next time I see you, I get to see the Corgi. Yeah. He's, he's cute as can be. Um, and you know, the good thing is he's a herding dog, right? Like border collies and all those kind. So they're super smart. You know, almost all the herding dogs are very, very smart dogs. Not to say that any dogs are dumb, but just some are a little smarter than others, right? They're a little above, above the normal dog par. Um, so he's he's like really good at learning things. He's been, for the most part, pretty good at learning, like, don't bite people, please. <laughs> you know, um, but it's it's fun. It's been a long time since I've had a puppy puppy because most of the rest of my dogs have always been adults, save when I was very young. So it's kind of like remembering, oh, yeah. These are all those things you have to do with a puppy. Yeah. 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 You're going to spend a month just trying to get him not to bite at full strength. And then eventually when he's tired, he's going to accidentally nip you a little bit harder than you want him to. Don't, don't get frustrated. You know, all the usual stuff when you're dealing with a baby. Yeah. And and (laughs) puppy teeth are razor sharp. Oh yeah. He's got little needles in there. Puppy teeth teeth and barracuda teeth are probably uh, very much on par with each other. They're both (laughs) super, super sharp. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's, uh, he's got some he's got some punch, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, and I, I would say on the note of, you know, I, I, I think people, you know, let's let's not even let's not even call them puppy mills, but just people that have a passion for a breed, um, respect and treat their dogs well and breed them. I think in general that's that's kind of falling out of favor and there's probably entire yeah. canine podcasts that all they do is probably harp on this one topic in particular. Um, but you know, when you, when you get a breed, you're able to actually pick a certain temperament. You're able to pick a certain characteristic that that breed tends to exhibit. And sure, rescuing is amazing. By all means, if you can rescue, God bless you, you know, good on you. Um, but you know, if you want a certain type of dog, like you're gonna almost be guaranteed that you'll get most of those characteristics that you want. Um, in a Corgi versus, you know, that, that sheltered dog, you're just, you're taking that gamble. You don't really know how it's going to turn out if it's a young puppy or if it's old, you know, if it's an older dog, you won't really know until you bring it home and it comes out of its shell if it ever does. So, uh, you know, a lot of people in our community, in our space do have sheltered dogs. So, so good on you. Um, and yeah, and I mean like your, your boss, our mutual friend, Corey, one of his, his most recent dog is a sheltered dog that had a, a harder life beforehand. So it's taken a lot of time and patience for him to get that dog a little more comfortable around people and around the other dogs and things like that. So it's, it's one of those things where there was a certain combination of things we wanted. And, um, this particular breeder, like an example, when this was her last, uh, set of puppies for basically the next year and a half, she's, she's given the girls plenty of time off. She's making sure that they're, they're super healthy before they ever have their next litter. Um, you know, just doing it responsibly, making sure that, the puppies are well taken care of, that the parents are well taken care of, all those kind of good things. Those are the things you want when you're looking for, you know, if you're going to look for a specific kind of dog, those are the things you want, right? You want to make sure that that person's not just like, how many puppies can I pump out? How much money can I make doing this? As opposed to like, okay, I have a batch of puppies. It it costs a lot to raise them and do all the medical stuff. So yeah, you're going to pay a little premium for them, but then, okay, now I'm not going to have puppies for a year and a half. 
Yeah. You know, yep. it's, it's just certain responsibility. It's just like doing shelter dogs where there's parts of it that you can do responsibly if you're choosing a dog. And I did my best to make sure that was the case. Yeah, Which is no. why it took me two and a half months to find said dog. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> Um, yeah, I just know that uh, I had a friend that was looking for a specific breed and just doing some basic Craigslist and other dog forum searches. Mm-hmm. Like they're, you know, they're either really, really far away or there's waiting lists for those that are close to you. So it doesn't seem like nearly as many people are doing it. Like when, you know, you and I were growing up and we were, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, it seems like far more people were, uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I, I swear you would see, um, you know, back then it was like the little nickel. You didn't have Craigslist, right? Or, or like similar ads in, in physical newspapers, and you would see tons and tons and tons of dog posts Wait, when I was a kid. Was yours, called, was yours called The Little Nickel? Yeah. Okay, because ours in California was called The Fickle Nickel. <laughs> oh, really? Awesome. Yeah, the, the, was, one up, the one up here in Washington is The Little Nickel, there which was, is still around. There was two. There was The Penny Saver and The Fickle Nickel. And is those... it the, pen, the penny saver is like a, a pretty more widespread variety, and if I, I remember right. And, and the funny thing is, so before Joe Dirt came out, like a thing I would do as a kid was always go and look at the used car section of those. And nice. they'd always have like f- maybe four ads for like a muscle car. And they, they yeah. it was either like <laughs> it was either like a 67 Camaro that was like a million dollars or it was just some like beat up, you know, some muscle car for like two grand. Right. And so that was kind of like my your... restoration project that I never did anything to. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. You, well, yeah. so you've like, those are the four or five ads and then Joe dirt comes out and it's like, Oh man, I used to do what Joe dirt does in this movie and they're making fun of it. So what does that say about me and my childhood? Uh, I mean, I grew up in a hot rod shop, so I, there is no way that I have room to talk because I, I spent so much time looking for certain cars especially as I got closer to driving age, like I was trying to hunt down all sorts of stuff for me in particular, the, the thing that I wanted, one of the things I wanted the most other than I, I have a love of Mustangs, a chain steering wheel. No, I wanted an, <laughs> I wanted specifically a black uh, mid to late eighties firebird. Cause I loved Knight Rider as a kid. Oh my goodness. And I, I wanted night. I wanted, an, I wanted kit so bad. I was going to do light conversion. I actually got my first, my first ever car that was dedicated to mine was an 89 Pontiac firebird in black. Uh, <laughs> what year was the actual, uh, what year was Knight Rider that model? So the actual kit is, uh, I think it's like an 84 or 85. It's, it's mid eighties. And there's some certain differences in the specific trans and they use, you can tell by like the hood, for example, and this is where you get super car nerdy. Um, if you want like the, the shatterer of dreams, that is my father. I remember as a kid, we would be driving places and I would see what I thought was a Ferrari. And they, back in the day, it was really popular to make kits because of Miami vice. (laughs) And they, they would, we're take so the, far off the rails. <laughs> oh yeah, we're so far off the rails. I'm sorry, but they would take the body off of Pontiac Fieros and mm, put yes, this yes. kit over the top. And my dad, like, I, I remember being like eight and driving to this event out in Bothell that we were going to. And I'm like, Dad, 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 look, Ferrari, Ferrari. And he's like, Oh, and he like he glanced for I swear a second. He's like, No, son, that's a Fiero. You can tell by the wheels. Nice. And I was like. Oh, it's like soul crushing. I had, I actually, it's a small kid. Well, that that reminds me because in like, I don't know, that eighth grade freshman year transition, I remember I I met a buddy from a different school and he had a Fiero and his dream was to do that kit car conversion. It's like, I don't know, part of me was like, that's amazing. But the other part of me is like, that's a lot of work to like have a pretend Ferrari. I don't know. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But it, but it's so cheap compared to the real one. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but it's not, 
I guess it's not the real one though. But all right, we probably we, I probably lost every last subscriber that was like, "Oh, Randy put out another episode. Let's listen to Fish." And we're you know five minutes into it talking about Kit, the uh, the Night Rider, yes, and, and Fiero Kit. It's cars. the real test. The real test is how dedicated they are to the Fish info. Yeah, like that's a good time. Well, I am I am trying to consistently hit one hour on episodes now, so I just filled up what a six just some filler. Yeah, there we go. That's some solid. That's some solid filler. All right, Bentley, let's talk fish, man. What have you been up to? What's uh, what's been oh. new in your fish life? Or or you can just fill me in on uh, Greater Seattle Aquarium Society, uh, some some info that I'm missing since I've been so absent from the club scene and sure. uh, I haven't been able to attend any meetings. Um, so we just had a talk from one of your previous mm. guests, the absolutely wonderful Lawrence Gosh. Kent. How great! How great was that talk? Uh, every talk, it, I've I've only had two from Lawrence so far, but Lawrence is just such a wonderful personality to listen to. He's such a good storyteller. This one especially. So this one is all about Africa, and uh, a particular country inside of Africa that is uh, a one hundred percent Islamic nation that is basically on the highest tier of don't go there list because of the rates of crime and how often they'll kidnap foreigners and things like that. But Lawrence had spent time in the Peace Corps there over 20 years ago when he was a younger man. And part of the goal, other than finding, like he, he was going to find African arowanas and some certain cichlids, he was going to find some friends of his from when he was in the Peace Corps. Oh, this is his, this, the, he, he did this uh, 2019, right? He took his son. Yeah, he just yeah. He, like he's he's not been back very long, um, so he took his son with him, and just the the story behind it is fantastic. Which if people it, it, if people haven't listened to episode three or seven, which one is it? Like, yeah, it was the, very early. It, it, yeah, I, I actually it's when I was working at Amazon downtown Seattle. Um, Lawrence was gracious enough to give me like thirty minutes of his time. I walked over to where he worked, which is also in downtown Seattle. Um, or South Lake Union, technically, and we had lunch, and then we recorded a, a very, very brief episode, but it's all content that he hasn't shared um, in any of his talks, and this guy's given a ton of talks, and one of those, one of the nuggets that he that he shares, which he probably does mention in his talks, is that um, I'm pretty sure it's all three of his kids are actually born in Egypt, so yeah, just, just wild, wild stuff, and uh, Lawrence, I mean, speaks like a thousand different languages or something crazy like that. But oh, yeah. watching I mean, he's, watching he's him share those posts on Facebook of him and his son in this Islamic country or just any of his posts where he's in Africa or Asia or wherever he is. Um, I mean, the guy's like philanthropic Indiana Jones, you know, like it's it, it's yeah, absolutely it, amazing the stuff he does. And there's um, I, I, I don't I don't know that his talks will ever make it online other than inside of our club. So I. I don't want to totally spoil the story, but like don't one spoil, of the things, yeah, don't, he, yeah, don't spoil the story. <laughs> one of the things he was going there for is African arowanas, and being the fish collector he is, he's going to find them, right? That's not the spoil of the story. The spoil of the story has to do with the uh, the people he knew in the Peace Corps. That's that's the cool part of the story. Mm. Um, well, he didn't just find an African arowana; he found a nest. Wow, with hundreds hundreds and hundreds of like inch long fry in the nest and so like one of the short videos he showed us is pulling up a small dip net with just easily two or three hundred of these baby arowanas wow. in them and i was just like oh my and i was like yep 
and I can't take any of them back, even though I want to. But I found them, and I caught some. That's and that's amazing. all I need. You know, it's just, it's really cool. And he found all these like super cool cichlids, taught quite a lot about some of the indigenous. So like the Nile perch is actually supposed to be in most of the areas he was in, unlike how it's in parts of the Amazon and ruining all sorts of other places because it was brought in as a food source. The Rift Lakes, yeah. Yeah, or the, the Nile Tilapia, I'm sorry, not the Nile perch. But um, yeah, so it's... You know, he's like, yeah, and here's where it's actually supposed to live. <laughs> mm. if, if ever, yeah, so that that's one of those, like, you know, promo, promoting people joining their club, like that caliber of world-class speaker. And Lawrence, I mean, he, he goes and does stuff with NANFA, so North American Native Fish Association. So he's down in the south talking in Alabama, Mississippi. He's in the Midwest. He's given talks at those clubs. So I'm sure this talk will probably make its round around the circuit. And yeah, so if I, you, I, hopefully it will if, go to several clubs because it's you, fantastic. If you haven't joined your fish club or if you have a local fish club, check and see who their speaker list is. And if you see the name Lawrence Kent, you want to get that, that is an go. absolute must must see uh must attend talk i'm super bummed that i wasn't able to go to this one but uh thankfully i know eric's doing the the video editing right now so i will be able to watch yeah. it because i say gonna... good good news you remember and you can watch it online yeah i mean yeah. the super secret place which which one did i do i just did my renewal i think i did the two-year i think i went uh i think it went... yeah they, they don't let us do the longer ones anymore because they for a while they had a five-year hmm and they like it disappeared shortly after I joined because at first I was like, oh, I'll just do the one year and then I'll I'll probably make my decision, you know, later. So I didn't really know how awesome our club was until I went to the first couple of meetings and I was like, I made a mistake and I should have just done the five year. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it's what, what is it like 20 bucks, 20 bucks a year? Oh, yeah, it's 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 stupid cheap. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the, 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 the club's not trying to make money off membership yeah, you, you, you spread it out over that annual basis and it's pretty darn cheap and, and especially what the club gives you back and and i'm sure most of the the clubs in there uh, you know around the country try to do a similar thing for their members that that you know put forth a membership um yeah. so again can't I, I in general i cannot recommend highly enough joining a club being active uh and then also you know if you see the name lawrence kent you have to go save the date get a babysitter, whatever you have to do. Although I failed. I failed. I didn't get a babysitter, but well, I, I look at it like this in the case of Lawrence, like he's not as well known on YouTube as say Gary Lang or Greg Sage or, you know, any of the YouTube personalities, but I've, I've seen, I, I Gary is like a personal fish hero of mine. I love when Gary Lang speaks. Lawrence Kent might be a more entertaining storyteller. I have a ridiculous bias because I'm a rainbow fish nerd and Gary talks about rainbow fish, right? I have a ludicrous bias in that selection, but if you get a chance to see Lawrence, don't miss it. Just don't miss it. It's so worth it. Absolutely. Yeah. Any, uh, any other, actually, and in, in speaking of the club, I'm currently drinking water out of my uh, Greater Seattle Aquarium Society 2019 General Auction Swag yeah. Cup, <laughs> which I took my, uh, I loaded the the three year old in the truck, went down. I think we drove like an hour just to get to this place because I needed this cup and I needed a shirt. I didn't need a single thing at that auction, but yeah, I had to have kind of, the swag. It is items. kind of the opposite side of everything for you as far as the greater Seattle area is concerned. It's uh, it's pretty far, yeah. I, I mean, part of me is with, with – granted, I have zero time whatsoever, but I want to start up like a, a splinter east side club and just – 
whether we meet virtually or just, you know, it's like three people that meet down the road and I buy everybody pizza and we just sit around a table and talk about fish for 30 minutes, basically like what they're doing up in the North Sound, uh, but just get something closer to home. And then ideally, I would still love, I would really, really love to just plant the seed that we do um, satellite meetings and actually like broadcast a live, uh, a live stream of the speaker presentation to a couple different, like South Sound, North Sound, and then on the east side for us, because the traffic is just horrendous yeah, in this area. And, and we, we meet on a Tuesday evening, which there's a lot of people who can't make a weekday. Well, a lot of people can't make, uh, you know, and you that's going to happen. Seven <laughs> not, days not to mention the traffic and well, all that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, so, you, it doesn't, it doesn't like whether you pick an afternoon, evening, weekday, weekend, there's going to be a, a chunk of people that just aren't going to be able to go. Uh, and even if they have the time, like the traffic, like the traffic alone is enough to deter people seven days a week. Right. So let's, let's just embrace technology and let's set up some satellite locations and sure, you're not gonna be able to participate in the auction. Maybe we have, um, satellite auctions where, you know, people just bring some stuff and do some trades or whatnot, but at least the meat and potatoes of being able to watch the presentation in real time. I think that would be really cool to sit and watch that with some fellow fish nerds. Man, you, you want, you want technology to come into the fish world. That's just crazy talk. It would be a <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, Eric Olson, that guy, he, he knows technology. He can make it happen. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say otherwise. Like the guy oh, knows his tech. Yeah. Like, but like it's a, it's a matter. I think part of it is they have certain agreements with how they do the recordings with the speakers because a lot of them do tour. Right. So they don't want to necessarily live broadcast, but I'm, there's, there's a way to fix it. There has to be. I, I would think so. I, I, I agree on the, I haven't fought it too hard internet. So, <laughs> so there's the internet dissemination, right. That a lot of these speakers don't want their talks to be, um, available in a recorded fashion but i think in a temporary it's being broadcast live and then it's gone right like we have a satellite location where hey let's be green right let's get people out of their cars and stop driving you know an extra distance right aren't we aren't we supposed to be green and carbon conscious and all that good stuff so you stay in your locale and we'll use technology and you can watch the speaker live and when it's done poof it's gone, right? You're a, you're a club do-paying member, so you get to watch. And actually, I, I think technically we're supposed to let the public in, right? Isn't that a thing? Yeah, it, uh, meetings are open to public. Well, yes. well, there you go. So the public. Yeah, so it's it's very it's you. I, I, this is nothing that I haven't thought about as somebody who works in the tech field, um, and has worked in both virtual and augmented reality as a part of my my tech experience. Oh, are we all gonna uh, wear VR headsets at these meetings? So. And then, uh, like, you get, it, and then you get to go swim with Gary Lang and Papa New Guinea funny. with a VR headset? It's, it's funny you say that because part of what I'm most interested in in tech, and um, this will come out long enough, so I'm trying to change my job, but I won't know <laughs> until after this, um, is in augmented reality. Think about how you could impact fish room tours. If you could, as a, even as a content creator, because software can do this, sit your camera down and let it record certain things, and software could digitally stitch a full altered or virtual reality environment of your fish room together. And you could film each tank for a certain number of minutes so somebody could walk past and see that tank and then hear you or see you walk them through virtually. Where... You think, you know, like fish room tours are super sweet, but 
how much better would it be if it felt like you were standing there while Corey interviews Gary Lang? Well, I think, I or think, you know, or while having somebody like you know Randy Reed walks me through his fish room personally. Like how how insane of a change would that be? Not just to like YouTube content or video content, but the way that we as hobbyists get to see some of the people we know or some of the like even some of the, the more famous fish people that are out there that um, may not be able to travel anymore because they're getting kind of old, right? What if you get an opportunity to like, before that person is gone from this world, some of those legends that are out there, and I, you can, I can guarantee you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> don't, don't name names. <laughs> well, yeah, saying, I, you've no, interviewed. Well, the man I'm well, talking about, you've interviewed. Well, most so. of the people, I mean, a lot of the people in the hobby are kind of at that stage. It's older, <laughs> too, yeah. And, but an ability to see that person walk you through their fish room, tell you stories about some of the fish they want to tell stories about and make it like you're standing right there. No, technology can do that, but within the next five to 10 years, it will do it in a way that we most people can't fathom. Like it's hard to understand like 360 video now is in its infancy of what it can become. And even though it's kind of a cool experience and like some, some YouTubers have tried 360 stuff. There was like a fad of trying 360 video for a while and then it went away because it's really intensive on the computer hardware that we as, you know, fledgling human beings own compared to like professional grade stuff. But that gap is closing very quickly. And if you could use technology to create experiences like that, or like, and like you said, dive into a lake with Gary Lang. Go go into the Amazon River with Dean and Corey. Like, just think about like some of those experiences. Think about your Peru trip, and if you could, in those short clips you guys were showing stuff, have people feel like they're standing right beside you the entire time, and be able to look around and see everything around them. It would be an insane experience. Yeah, hundred percent. You've got. I mean, you've got me convinced. Um, and you know, on the note of a fish room tour. No, no fish room tour that I have seen online, and then I've gone into said fish room or uh, distributor or warehouse or whatever it is. They never do it justice. It's yeah. you know, and and some of that could just be the style of um, the person recording the fish room, and you know how they want to frame, whether it's an interview, whether they're showing tanks, like whatever it is. Uh, going into somebody's fish room is a very personal experience. Every, I, I would, oh, yes. I would wager that every aquarist is going to approach a fish room tour different and to experience a fish room tour, like any of the, the people that you've named, even my fish room, um, you know, through the lens of just one person is never going to do the fish room justice. I mean, there's perspective, yeah. like there's, vi- there's just the visual perspective. There's the spatial, like, you know, I, I would, I would have to imagine the people that have now seen the, the video of my fish room tour, probably every person has a different idea of if they were to picture that in its completion, in its entirety, if you were there in person, it would be yeah. completely different than if you were actually in there. And so, uh, I, I think completely buying in with your, with your, with your vision of the future, like, you know, let's say you put on the, that VR headset and let's let's even take it a step further. You've got like this haptic vest and haptic gloves, and now all of a sudden you're able to actually walk in the space and feel how small my fish room is, or how small Dean's fish room is. Yeah. And then go to or, or, go to one of these Midwest 
people's houses that have, you know, massive fish rooms and just you, you would feel the difference. You'd be able to touch and get haptic response to like where a rack is or where a tank is or, you know, any like just any of, of, of that whole thing. And I do like your, you know, your curated kind of viewer, you know, oh, now I'm looking at this tank, you know, boom, said fish room owner then gives his five minute talk about that particular tank and I can choose to disengage from that tank you know, while he's talking or not, or like whatever it is, like just that fully, fully immersive experience. Um, and it, it, from what technology continues to do, I would completely have to imagine that that's going to be on the horizon in the next five to 10 years, if not well, like you, in two years. You have years. to think that like, you know, currently the, the standard is 4k that most of your YouTubers have the capability to film in. And that's not even using super expensive cinema gear. We're, we're getting close to the horizon where 8K is going to become more publicly available, and 8K already registers things that the human eye can't detect. That was going to be my next question. I don't, I don't know this, but like, what, what does my tw- – so even though my vision's failing a little bit, but if I were to have you know, 2020 <laughs> vision, what, what, what do you see – what is that translated to in like 8K, whatever it is, you know, human sure. 2020 so vision? Part, part of it is, is like the – assuming the eye is in perfect health it has infinite focus so everything regardless of distance appears in focus where when you do this with a camera because of how cameras have to let in light and have to capture images you'll have that fuzzy portion that's out of focus right and we use this in cinema to be very artistic and to make it look interesting and it gives it a certain feel but your eye can detect something basically between 4k and 6k is where it can register like everything within a certain level of definition once you get past into like true 8k and past it you're getting color and level of sharpness that the human eye is not designed to interpret like we we only interpret so much on the light spectrum and so much when it comes to um visual quality which think about it the human eye is incredible it's taken years and years and years to get to a point of where technology can outpace portions of human anatomy, which has been evolved for thousands of years. Right. But once we start cracking that threshold, we, we have the technological power to do things to where like I could film potentially four tanks at once if I have the right lens or what have you. And the, the sharpness of the image is so strong that a person can focus on one and technology in software could zoom in to that and you'd still have like a 4k image zoomed in on the tank so that it would still be incredibly sharp and you could register all the beautiful colors of whatever fish is in there like without having to like do incredible amounts of work like up close with every different tank and then far away and then exit you know we're, we're getting to a technological point where some of the things that you know we've seen in science fiction for years now are going to be real you know the, the things that you saw in uh you know ready player one like fully immersive virtual worlds can become real and we can use that in all sorts of ways in media there's there's a darker side to technology too do not get me wrong but we we like to think of things with the positive <laughs> in the fish world i think i think some of those experiences are like you know for people they maybe you have some kind of disability to where you could never do this, but what would it be like to swim with like the pink dolphins in the Amazon? 
or killer whales out in Puget Sound, or be right with the whale sharks that are in the, the Georgia Aquarium. You can do all of that inside of virtual and augmented reality. You, you can make that experience occur. And, and you, the, you know, you can make it even more real with like tactile gloves and stuff. So you can literally feel what it feels like when a stingray comes over the top of your hand and eats out of your hand, mm-hmm. you know, like, and like, those are things that happen in like touch tanks in a sea world, even though they're not the safest thing in the world to do that, but they've been doing it for years. So whatever, <laughs> but you know, for people that couldn't do that, we can use technology to create those experiences, which in the end, I think will give a greater appreciation for nature for so those of us who are on the conservative side of things and want to protect habitats that gives you the chance for more people to appreciate some of these things and the more that people appreciate them the more likely they are to create places like a project piava where they're down there preventing businesses from totally destroying the area by buying that land and using it as a conservative space to protect ornamental fish or whatever you know maybe it's maybe it's with birds with some people that are into birds or certain specific species of wild cats or whatever that might be um it's an opportunity to potentially change more than just technology but change how the actual world is and what becomes of value to native people in third world countries that might be looking at well how do i most efficiently feed my family i I don't care about your your silly ornamental fish, unless it makes more money than any other thing I can do. And then I do. Yeah. What's, what's funny is with this technology and as you bring up ready player one and you know, what pops in my head with VR is that I've yet to play those Oculus star Wars lightsaber games. Is, <laughs> is bear, bear with me on this one. Right. So, so we're talking about all these potential positive benefits for the nature aspect of it and people swimming with whale sharks and whatnot. But if the technology is so advanced and it's so there and it's continuing to be so much more immersive and real, would people just want to do those Star Wars battles? Would people just want to immerse themselves in pure fantasy escape ready player one realities and completely detach themselves from, I don't care about a rainforest because I need to go level up in this super <laughs> awesome game. Like, right? Like, I feel like that may, like, ho- hopefully, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm You're being going down the dark side. Yeah, I'm being You're pessimistic going down the, here. The I'm, dystopian being, side. I'm, I'm being pessimistic here, but. But uh, think about, like, let's let's take Pokemon Go, Right. Pokemon Go technically is an augmented reality game. Everybody uh, turns that off, though. It's garbage. Right, right. But I wouldn't know. I mean, not like I play Pokemon Go or anything. There's handicaps to it. But what? It, remember, like when it first came out, you would see hordes of people who you would never see walking in a park. Walking in a park. Now imagine if you can make altered or virtual reality experiences that not only encourage some level of health by, you know, if you want to swim with dolphins, you, you actually swim in a, in a shape, in a sense, right. Or you, you want to go, um, you know, cycling with Lance Armstrong or whatever the heck it might be. You pick, pick your, your realm of interest. If it's not specifically fish, you can tailor things that not only make that, experience more immersive but also can promote health to people who may not normally do those things and it improves the quality of life for people overall 
But you assume, though, that they would take swimming with dolphins over trying to catch waterborne Pokemon. Well, if you make them have to swim in water to catch those Pokemon, then the 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 effect is the same. It's just the choice of how to get them to that effect. No, I'm. I'm and there's I'm lots of you. stuff. I'm with you. I'm so just, anyway, I'm being facetious. This this is like how a like super tech savvy person like me looks at what the future of our hobby can be. Because one of the the biggest problems with getting the younger generation in is the ease of being entertained by technology and how difficult it can be to perceive having something like taking care of a fish tank. But if you give them some of those experiences digitally, it might encourage them to want to do it for real because now they get to create their own slice of nature. They get to do the things that they see other people doing, but now they make all the choices. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the promise is there, right? I mean, I think uh, it's just what we choose to do with it, right? How we choose to deploy it. Right. And so, like, the to get back to our original question off this long tech tangent, but be another tech tangent. Uh, the, the most recent thing in my life, other than, like, I've been working on a video game. Uh, I saw that. <laughs> on, top of my, on top of my normal job and on top of doing YouTube, I've been working on a video game. And then my kind of fourth thing on the backside has been a project to give people without a fish club the ability to go through a similar master aquatic horticulturalist program as is offered by some of the best clubs in the United States. And that is super awesome. So, when you were telling me about that. So let's, uh, maybe you're already headed there, but let's break down yeah. what that program would look like for somebody that actually joined GSAS or another club that has a horticulturist pro- program. Right. So most of the programs out there, you have some of like the super complicated programs, like the one for the Missouri aquarium society. So Massai, um, you have simpler programs as far as like how in depth they make you do certain things. Um, so like the Minnesota Aquarium Society has a fantastic horticulture awards program, but it's not as complicated in submitting things as like Maasai is, uh, the GSAS is kind of in the middle between those two. Um, but uh, every one of them has a very robust horticulture awards program that encourages people to grow and propagate. And in some cases flower their aquatic plants. So how we the biggest problem is that there are so many people, not just in the United States, but all over the globe that don't have a local aquarium society of any form. So how do they get a similar experience and go through a program that can, whether it is through self-education or through some guidance, get the same experience that someone like you and I who are in the GSAS can have where we can choose to be a part of our horticulture awards program. And inevitably, the goal is actually to bring up more than just a horticulture program. So having like a breeder awards program, going the saltwater side and having like a coral no, growing program. You're, don't go saltwater. Get out of here. But but it's not about necessarily <laughs> me running them. It's using It's creating technology that allows other experts to design the program and have it all in one central place. So like, as long as you have access to the internet – 
you can participate. Without digressing too far, but uh, I never actually really thought about it, but I guess it would make sense that coral propagation, are there actually marine aquarium clubs that have coral propagation um, kind of competitions and and programs? There has to be. I would assume so, right? Like I'd never thought about it, but... They're the easiest thing in salt water for people to um, spawn, propagate, you pick. I mean, it, it is a living organism closer to something like a fish. Fragging, right? You, That's you, what they you, call you, it. Yeah, you, you propagate more closely to what how a plant would be propagated. Mm-hmm. It's kind of this weird middle ground is how coral works. Mm. Um, but there, there has to be. Like, I know there are saltwater aquarium societies, and I imagine some of them have some level of coral program, and yeah. they might even have breeding programs for some of the fish that can be captive bred, like clownfish and yellow tangs and things like that. Um, but each one of these is a different kind of skill set inside of our, our aquarium hobby. So why not? It, it, the thing that astounds me is that no one's done this before. And maybe it's just because people don't see um, until YouTube, like, I don't think people have like seen where people might want to do this kind of thing. Cause a lot of I've, the most common thing I get is like, how do you become a master aquatic horticulturalist? Cause I, I feature plants a lot on my, my channel. And it's like, well, <laughs> usually you need a local club that has a horticulture awards program. And eventually I started thinking to myself, well, do you need one like that? Couldn't we just make one? Because we can look at all the examples that are out there and extrapolate a system, which is all I'm doing is I'm building a system based off of several of the best systems that are in the U.S. Uh, with a, a little more complexity than some of the simpler ones, but not quite as complex as like, say, Maasai is. Uh, just because it needs to be easy for anyone to participate with very, very simple checks and balances. So basically all they have to be able to do is submit pictures. And from there, it would, you know, it just has to be able to go back to whoever, quote, the admin, unquote, is for them to verify, yes, they, they planted Pogus daemon octopus. And in this picture, they've propagated it at once. You know, where it's like they had five stems, now they have 10. Next time they had 10, now they have 20. Okay, they've done all their propagations. Here's your points for propagations, right? You can, the, the workflow in, in technology is simple. But there's nothing out there right now that mimics that workflow that is an off-the-shelf product. You, you basically have to, it has to be created for how all the horticulture awards programs tend to work. So that's where I, I'm stepping in. I have developer friends. It's pretty easy for me to go to my, my developer friends who often make me feel uh, not very smart at times because they're incredibly smart people. I just go, okay, here's what I, here's what I have pictured. How hard is it for us to do this in code? And most of them are like, well, we could, we could probably do that in, you know, X time frame. But, you know, this person's never done web work who knows the best way to do part of it. And this, the person that has done web work doesn't know the same code language as the guy who knows how to build the back end. So there's some, some things I have to finagle to get it to work to then make it completely available on the web to anybody who has an internet connection. Nice. So let's do let's do two things real quick. One is sure. um, I want to give kind of a high level overview of um, how points are acquired, and the second yep. would be I want to know how you 
um, are going to address potential bad actors. So uh, to give the high level sure. view of, you know, kind of a, the horticulturist program or even a, a breeder's award program, typically the things that are easier to spawn, easier to propagate, say like a Valisneria is going to mm-hmm. net you. Um, a lower number of points. And as you work right. your way up to like flowering an Anubius or propagating, um, you know, I don't know, you could throw out there some other complicated uh, plants. Uh, a Ponageaton. Uh, there you go, a Ponageaton. <laughs> so getting getting something that's harder to propagate will net you more points. Um, typically, I believe you can only either uh, claim points for a given species once. Maybe it's once in a lifetime or once in an annual cycle. Um, so that's kind of how points are accumulated. Sure. So for, for breeders award program, um, spawning convict cichlids, spawning guppies, those will net you the lowest number of points possible. And they'll typically right. have some like, you must show us a picture of five or 10 or 15 fry that made it beyond 30 days, right? Some, 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 right. some type of criteria. And then as you step up and it's like, oh, you bred Shodani puffers. You get like a million points, and you you just pretty much win for the entire year, right? So it's you're so you're a crazy person in Arizona. You How are did you figure this out? You're a very crazy person in Arizona who's who's taking on even more puffers of different species. So, uh, so yes, so yeah, so you basically get this, you know, kind of. Um, tiered stepped reward point system and that really pushes you to you know go oh man so i'm kind of breeding everything in this lower tier but you know what's that next tier up and it really helps you to know like oh that next tier up is kind of a logical progression for me. I shouldn't go from guppies to um, Shodani puffers right off the get-go because there's going to be, you know, there's just such a straight, steep learning curve. Well, the club has kind of already given me the, the the stepwise progression of, oh, okay, so I did live bears, I did convict cichlids. Oh, I should probably try um, angelfish. Like maybe that's the next one. So instead of five points, you'd get 10 points. You know what I mean? And, and right, so on right. and so forth as you go up that ladder. And so are you going to structure um, the point awarding system in the same in a similar fashion with what you're uh, envisioning. So there's a there's a combination of things in my system, and this is where the complexity comes in. You have points based on the difficulty of the plant. So things like a duckweed. There you go. <laughs> it is an aquarium plant. It is worth points. It's, like it's hardest, not worth. Bro. It's not worth very much <laughs> because for some of us we can't get rid of the stuff. Um, and then as you get progressively harder, things like propagating aponogetans where you, you you tend to have to actually flower the plant and get a seed from that plant and then plant said seed is where you're going to see um, higher point values. Now, every aquarium society out there that has a really good program has a really robust list. Maasai has the most robust list. It is almost too complicated for its own good. Um, so... I'm basically basing the point values off of those. Do they keep it at the genus but, level or do they actually go down to species? Both. Wow. Okay. So they have, um, they kind of have almost, the point levels are almost all based on genus. But there are some exceptions at the species level that are known to be far more difficult than other things. So an example would be like Ludwigia tornado, as it's commonly called, um, which is. Ludwigia inclinata verticalum variation tornado is its full scientific. Um, <laughs> it's much harder than any other Ludwigia. It's a very, very finicky plant. Same with like the, the white Ludwigias are very finicky, especially submerged. So those have a slightly higher point value than all the rest of the Ludwigias. Because otherwise you'd be like, oh, all Ludwigias are super easy. They should only be worth five points. 
right? But then you're like, little bit of tornadoes only worth five points. Are you kidding me? I've killed this plant four times, and I'm supposed to be really good at plants. Mm-hmm. I don't have a personal experience with that or anything. Stupid plant. <laughs> um, where where the complexity comes in is that my system, as it is currently designed, and it's not done. I'm I'm playing with it to make sure that it's not easily exploitable, uh, <laughs> because I don't want someone. So like. I've looked at, say, my club system and realized that if I really wanted to, there is the way to very quickly exploit the system to get a lot of points very quickly on plants that aren't that hard. And I've chosen never to do that <laughs> because it feels so scummy. <laughs> I've chosen to just grow the stuff I like or grow the stuff that is challenging um, to me. But the the difference in my system is you are going to have, rather than just telling how did you propagate the plant, there are category requirements. So you will, you'll have like miniature masteries inside of a master aquatic horticulturalist. So you'll get a stem mastery. You'll have a rhizome mastery. You'll have, uh, you know, the different kind of epiphytes. You'll have a moss mastery. Um, I put a small preview out on my community tab for folks just to look at some of the basics um, without going deep into like point levels and things like that. And then you'll have things like in order to get to master aquatic horticulturalist, you'll have to have completed every one of the categories. And each category has a, a slightly different requirement of number of plants you have to propagate. You will have to have flowered at least a certain number of plants and you'll have to have propagated at least a certain number of species of plants on top of the point requirement. So basically all it does is it forces you to get a little bit of variety. And the reason why I do that is I think it's important to be a quote master, unquote, horticulture person when it comes to our aquatic plants is to understand a certain level of expertise about every basic type of plant. So Java ferns, which are adventitious child plants, the way that you propagate them, other than their rhizome division, is significantly different than how you would propagate Anubius, where Anubius is basically purely rhizome division. You can more effectively replicate uh, things like Bulbitis and Java ferns in different methods. Uh, Your rosette-style plants, so like your swords, are going to be different than your crypts, but one is easier to flower than the other. So there's all sorts of room to learn kind of a certain level of mastery of every type of those plants before you're going to be awarded master aquatic horticulturalist. And that's the, that's the complex part of my system, but it is all achievable because you could easily do only the bare minimum in some of those other categories, like when it comes to sword plants versus mosses and then you could earn the bulk of your points or numbers of species in stems because there's a million jillion different rotalas alone you could just be a rotala expert and not really touch ludwigias or pogostamons although it's pretty unlikely because most of those are pretty easy to grow too and get all your points there and then fill out your variety that's required for like to hit your number of categories by just doing the bare minimum of all the other plants. And if that's how you want to do it to quote, exploit the system, unquote, okay, but it's going to actually be harder to get to that level of mastery doing it that way than just by kind of doing a balanced approach and doing like, well, 
I'm going to do this number of swords and I'm going to do this number of crypts and these mosses and these floating plants, a couple of Java ferns, a couple of Nubias, a couple, you know, a few Ludwigias, a few Pogus Daemons, stuff like that, where you just kind of play with a little bit of every plant. You're going to learn more that way, but more importantly, you'll complete the program faster doing it that way. So, so I, I get, I get what you're doing as far as trying to get that balanced approach, trying to get people to be well-rounded mm-hmm. horticulturalist, horticulturalist. Hello, nine thirty-seven, nine thirty-seven in the evening. Um, <laughs> so, those people that would say, let's say, let's say they they do, they abuse Rotala, they abuse Pogostemin, and sure. they try to, um, you know, work their way up the ranks. But they're still they're still not necessarily they're gaming, but they're not being bad actors and they're not cheating and they're not submitting false pictures. So is there right. some type of a photo verification you must download and print out a QR code that's then present in all of your picture submissions, or is it just look, man, if you're if somebody's gonna go down that route, like whatever, we're just gonna we're gonna take each case, we're gonna prove it, we're not gonna go and you know try to do machine learning algorithmic <laughs> security nonsense like or or, or do, are you going to go and, and take that route and actually try to um, scour the internet and do image uh, verification that this is an actual true unique image to this user to try to act to try to weed out the truly bad actors as opposed to somebody that's just trying to game the existing system without breaking any rules and falsifying sure. submissions so um, I, I guess there's a couple things like one entering the program will have a cost because operating a website and web servers cost money Right. So I can't do it entirely for free. If I could, I would. Um, So if somebody wants to spend their earned money to completely game a system, I'm not probably initially I don't plan to take a machine learning approach for validation. However, um, whenever a plant is submitted. So you could think of each uh, just because this is easy for you. uh, You could think of each submission of a plant as an order in a warehouse right why is that easy for me your experience with warehouses (laughs) don't don't you give me this so the and and just to work people through the flow so you have the initial order submitted right this is i've just submitted the plant and it's going to have all the information about the plant and that allows the admin which for the the start will be me doing this effectively by hand Verifying that like you have the right scientific name, and then you have to have a picture of the initial planting of the plant. So in order to just start that submission, you have to have a picture so that I can look at it and identify the species and go, you said that's Pogostamon erectus, but I'm looking at it, that's Pogostamon octopus, right? So if you have the wrong plant, um, if you haven't done that plant before, it will get fixed. And a, a message is sent back to the user, just like, hey, you submitted it as this. It's actually this plant at the admin level. We've changed it and locked it in. It's now Pogo Stamon Octopus for your entry because you haven't done it before. If you've done it before, then it's rejected. Then when they go for their first propagation, they have to have a picture that verifies. And you can look, you'll see the initial planting picture. And now you'll see the first propagation picture. And if all of a sudden they're in a completely different tank, something's up, right? Now, well, so you, so couldn't it be a different tank, though? I mean, if it's a stem plant and you 
cut, yeah, you know, you, you cut be. it and then you put it in a different tank. It can be. So this is one of the things where you'll look at, um, you know, does the quality of the picture line up? Because mm. most people are probably going to use their cell phone. And if all of a sudden it looks like something out of a green aqua tank <laughs> compared to like, you know, I just planted this tank and I only bought one pot of Pogostamon octopus for this back corner. And there's like, you know, seven stems taking up a quarter of a 40 breeder. And then all of a sudden I'm looking at like, you know, an ADA rimless tank with this beautiful Pogostamon on the back of it. And I'm like, uh, some questions are here. And there's, there's room for uh, naivety, if you will. I'm not going to be really harping too hard on people. But there, there's a level to make sure that people are on the up and up. Because I want people to use this program not only to learn, but to validate themselves that, like, no, you, you do know plants. Once you've done a, a certain level of things, you know what you're doing. You're not a, a complete novice who needs to rely on xyz person and maybe more importantly to let other people know that like you don't have to a, a, a fancy title doesn't mean that that person might be significantly better than someone else like you can look at um corvus oskin our friend joel he doesn't have a master aquatic horticulture award from the greater seattle aquarium society but he easily knows as much about plants as i do and we swap plants back and forth all the time because we know that one of us will do it right and one of us will probably screw up when it comes to rarer plants. So we kind of cover each other's butts by splitting plants between the two of us. Because we know we're both pretty good with plants and one of us is going to get it right. Mm -hmm. Hopefully both. <laughs> but it's one of those things where it's like you don't necessarily have to have a fancy title to learn plants. But if you want that validation that is kind of what this program is designed to do. It's designed to educate people, let them kind of teach themselves a little bit. Cause I, I fairly believe that the best way to learn about plants is to not be afraid, be afraid to fail and to just try things. Like even if that plant is like, people are like, Oh, I don't know. That plant's pretty hard. I'm like, is it really try it? So, so now let's talk. Um, you know, I, I, I like this. I think this is great. Um, you know, I'm very sure. excited that you came on this evening and you're able to share this with us. Um, so let, let's say um, we've talked about kind of as an individual, you're engaging with the program as an individual. Um, mm -hmm. You are attaining titles, which, you know, what uh, titles may be silly or whatnot, but they're fun though, right? So I, there, there's. Right. And my, pro my program also only goes so far. I, I, mm -hmm. It's not like, it's not like my, my club where I'm a horticult master of horticulture, aquatic horticulture. 17 times over. Eight. <laughs> now working on nine um you know it's just there the you only have you you have certain levels but then once you hit grandmaster you're done so 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 yeah as, as i say this you know we're talking about the individual at the individual level attaining right. titles doing submissions now how do we leverage and what what's the plan for the community aspect for sure. um you know the growing through your community leveraging all these people that are engaging with the program leveraging that knowledge potentially trading unique species with others in different states or in different parts of, of, an, of a given state um yes. what, what do you have in mind if anything for the social aspect of this so what i would love to do long term um and in the short term I, we can only do so much, but the long term is to give anyone who participates in the program 
basically an opportunity to opt in. They don't have to opt out. So they, they have to opt in. I want to make sure that it's something that they volunteer for, not that they are forced to remove themselves from. Because as someone in technology, I know how frustrating that can be. Um, to basically have... You, you might call it a marketplace or you might call it like a, a trading board or something like that in order to put yourself into a system that makes some level of screen name as opposed to your real name visible so that if Randy wants to try and find a certain plant and has you know a list of five or so plants that he's currently growing that are available to trade in order to get that plant, that that can be done. Um, and, and also, like, the, the goal is long-term, it's not just a horticulture program. So, like, including other aspects of the hobby that we can reliably do things for. So, like, if we were to integrate a CARES program, if we were to integrate a breeder awards program, um, working with appropriate people who, who have levels of understanding of how those programs work and what you think is fair to, like, it's talking to someone like, say, Dean. Dean does not have a master breeder award from the Greater Aquariums, uh, Seattle Aquarium Society, as I recall. He, he should. He might, like from just years ago. Maybe he, he just probably stopped doing submissions. He, he doesn't participate in the program actively, even though the man breeds more fish than I swear anyone on the West Coast, um, as far as like a, a hobbyist level. Um, but, but if you talk to those people, they can they can go down like, yeah, you really can't call yourself a master unless you've done XYZ. And that might just be like it, you, Gary Lang has often said, like you can't call yourself a master breeder unless you've bred tetras and danios and this and that. Like you kind of have to touch everything, um, and not everything, everything, but most of the major categories of fish before you can really call yourself a master of something. Um, creating more programs like that is something I kind of want to do in the in the long haul, and being able to create some. I guess technically social network, although I, I, I've always hated the term social network um, because it often leads people to be antisocial, but creating some level of network to where a person who participates in any one of those programs can opt in to the ability to trade with other people. Or maybe it's, you know, working with a community like Git Gills that Dan's Fish runs where, you know, any given person can create their own shop and maybe you have a profile that links to your gills shop or something like that. If people want to look up like, Hey, I want to get a hold of this fish. And it like shows you all the people that have bred that fish and the people that decide to opt in, it has a link that takes them to their appropriate storefront, wherever that might be. Uh, and you probably have a, a list of approved ones. Like you don't want to go to too random a Facebook page because Facebook is very anti selling live animals. Um, but you know, some, some level of linking toward if, if it's like say Cascadia aquatics or Steenfot aquatics that have their own websites, let them link to that. If they choose to opt into that program, um, for those who are more on the hobbyist level and maybe they just like, you know, maybe it is just like a, a, a forum where they're at or something along those lines, let them link to those things where they can be contacted so that if people are interested in certain things, they have propagated in the sense of plants or bread in the case of fish, they can try to reach out to those people who want to be made available to contact to potentially sell or trade 
anything that they've done inside the program. Would, would there also be kind of like a mentorship thing? So I was looking at the uh, ACA's sure. Facebook page, and it looks like Facebook has a, a group feature for mentors. And so some people can kind of nominate themselves. I'm sure there's probably some type right. of a, a verification process. But, you know, hey, I am, I am Bob plant grower extraordinaire um i love interacting with people i love helping newbies or intermediates or fellow experts um mm-hmm. you know work through the challenges of breeding or i'm sorry of propagating you know any plant that i've done so here's the catalog of what i have propagated i have opted in anybody can t- contact me and now we've moved away from the idea of trading and marketplace and selling and now it's just purely uh knowledge base uh, dissemination, sharing of information, mentorship. Is there is there a, is there room and is there uh, a thought of putting something like that in place as well? Yeah. So the other thing that I've thought about, it's it, you mentioned it uh, pretty well. As, as far as I like an official mentorship program, I haven't charted that in my head yet. But what I kind of wanted was for each of the appropriate programs to have any number. Um, you know, it's probably a small number, but it doesn't necessarily have to be content creators. But let's say that the breeding program has advice on how to breed, you know, the smaller South American cichlids. And that might be a video featuring Dean because he's very good at it or angelfish. Right. But live bearers might be somebody like Greg Sage. And appropriate if they have something like a YouTube channel or some place where they they have continuing lessons on what they're experts at, having links to those sources if they want them. But I haven't thought in depth yet about a level of I've completed this program. <clears throat> Can I then like vet myself to be a mentor for other people joining the program? That's it's in my head, kind of in the very, very far back because it's more upfront. It's like, how do I get just the first part of this online before I expand it further? Um, but it is kind of in my head. It was like, how do we create good mentorship or educational content that helps people that, uh, you know, might not use YouTube or might not use some of the other sources, but somehow stumble across this. Maybe they're in a small club like the North Sound Aquarium Society that doesn't have one of these programs yet. And they're having their members use an online resource until they get to a point of where they have their own internal way to do that. Or maybe they just use that online resource the entire time for their club. Um, you know, what? Who, who knows what is the inevitable use of how this can be. But my goal is that I want to make it as accessible as possible. So that if something like a small club that starts up in, you know, Yakima, Washington, or, you know, some, some small part of Ohio or what have you that doesn't have a major club close enough can use those resources as a part of their club because they can make it, um, you know, one of the things I thought about was like, what if they have a, a club affiliation part of their profile? And if they, if they put in a club, then you could have, you know, if a, a particular person that you verify as, the president or vice president of that club has a profile, they could see at a glance, like how certain members have progressed, like have they completed whatever, whatever award levels they've completed. Um, Not necessarily any of their personal information, but just like say, Hey, if I want to look up John, uh, he's working on the horticulture program. What level is he at right now? Oh, the website says he's an advanced aquatic horticulturalist. Awesome. 
and you know he's he's uh, this this far away from hitting the next level or, or whatever that is you know whatever the percent progress is um, that's something that I have thought about a little more in depth just because there are some clubs out there that don't have some of these programs because they're either too small or um, you know maybe they they want to do those programs but they don't have the the people capable of running that or the technology capable of running that efficiently for them, making a tool like this useful to them is something I've, I have thought about a little more in depth than specifically say like a mentorship program. No, that's all awesome, Bentley. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm asking you questions that, uh, you know, are, are farther down on the, uh, on the roadmap uh, of development, things that maybe aren't at the front and center, but I think the fact that you've thought about them and that, you know, you, you've clearly put, a lot of time and a lot of effort into this, um, and it's uh, and it's a, a space of the hobby that you're so passionate about. I think it's fantastic. I think this is you know this is so great, and these are the kinds of things that individuals in our hobby you know should be encouraged to pursue to just you know be one of those greater good things, right? And just make it so that the hobby is more engaging, more immersive, um, you know, and, and take it from being this kind of typical introvert kind of thing and really you know really <laughs> yeah. leveraging I mean come on like, let's be real here like a lot of us are no yeah know, that's, a lot, that's a lot of the people <laughs> in I our do, hobby I do a podcast and I'm kind of introverted myself you know um and just really leveraging technology, leveraging your experiences and, you know, just doing something that, you know, has the potential to be a major contribution to the hobby. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah. It's a, one of the things that I, I made a joke when I, I kind of offered this up. So I let my audience decide this, by the way, um, my, what I chose to focus on. So at first I asked them if they even wanted me to, cause it, it required me to do one less video a week. Um, normally I was doing two. Now I only do one a week because I need that spare time just sure, <laughs> of, yeah. because of my schedule, like in order to acquire that time, it's basically like I can either do vid- an extra video every week where you have the two videos a week, or I can work on a quote, larger project. Just sleep two um, hours a day, man. What's wrong with you? <laughs> you trying, trying to get that full eight greedy. Uh, I mean, greedy, I'm, bro. I'm, I'm happy when I get six. Uh, so, but you know, I left that up to them and very overwhelmingly people were really interested in a project. Um, well, that part wasn't as overwhelming. It was still a good margin as far as a vote is concerned. And then there were several projects I put out there and the, one of the, the, the one I put at the bottom was lofty, but I knew that a couple of these options would do the same thing. And that was change the aquarium industry because I, I thoroughly want to in some way, shape or form leverage my understanding and my capability in tech because too many manufacturers, I would say, are complacent when it comes to what you can do in technology these days, when it comes to providing products to we hobbyists. Um, it's freaking terrible. It, yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, I'm in the damn industry, man. It's freaking I'm ridiculous. Tr- I'm, try- I'm trying to be polite because, you know, I don't want to rag on your boss. No, I'm just kidding. But you guys have seen it. You guys have seen, like, how much more advanced some of the stuff is in China compared to Europe or the U S and, and that's, and even then it's not to the level it can be. Uh, and there, there are some companies out there that have some lofty goals and are trying to do some interesting stuff with like, you know, machine learning and things like that. Um, we'll see if they get off the ground and can actually do it. I, I hope so. That would be great. But why not take the social aspect of what YouTube does in the way that it brings people together and, and make it so that, 
basically the whole of FishTube, the FishFam, whatever nickname you prefer, can basically be one massive global club and have some of those programs that normally are exclusive to a, a, a club that's been around since the 70s or the 60s or the 80s or what have you, and, and make that available to anyone, even if it's just like, you know, Joe in the Thule's of Idaho, who doesn't have a club unless he drives all the way to Washington State, or, you know, someone who's in, like, one of my, one of my viewers is in a northern part of Canada. I'm like, there's not very many fish people in general in any reasonable distance to him. But something like this is an opportunity for him to go through a program similar to what I have gone through or some of the other clubs that are out there, people who are lucky to be close to a club can go through. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things I think it's, I, I want to change parts of the aquarium industry for the positive in the sense of we have technology to connect people no matter where they are. Why aren't we using it? to the level that we can. And this is my way to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's a space, it's an industry that's ripe for disruption, uh, be it on the technology side and just on the, um, general, well, there's, tons of, there's tons of stuff that can be done. <laughs> I mean, just the general physical durable goods out there that companies continue to put out the same cruddy models or things that are lacking basic features that people continue to say on forums or whatever it is, if they would just put their ear to the ground and listen to customers and say, Oh, People are actually asking for this feature change. Why haven't we done it? And it's because they don't have to, because there's not enough competition. There's not enough disruption. But Randy, uh, if we make a heater last 10 years, how will we sell enough heaters? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, look at, look at, uh, look at Toyota and Honda, you know, short of, short of shrapnel airbags. You know, they've done a, they've done a pretty good job with, uh, with which, quality. Which is and, not manufactured by them. So it's not technically there. Sure. No, I know. I know. I know. I know. Um, and that affected more than just them. It affected Ford. It affected. But nonetheless, like, though, I mean, everyone. you know, they, they produce a quality product and right. they're still in business and they thrived to such the well, point and, and where they, they disrupted at, the industry and made everybody follow suit if you want to play ball in this in this car industry and, and so and that, and that great example in the car industry look at the brand loyalty for people who own toyotas or bmws most of them are so hyper loyal to some of those high quality brands that you look at as a vehicle that's going to last you a long time and is well made their their brand loyalty is incredible and it, it and I, I know that like Several people that I know have all joked about this. It's like we we don't care so much that um, you're the the flashiest item, but if your item is the one that's going to last us ten years instead of two, then every tank we own is going to have that on it. And yeah, you might not sell the person with one aquarium, a heater every two years, or, you know, a filter cartridge set every month or whatever stupid ploy there is to, to sell more products from a, a merchandising perspective or a designed failure perspective. But if you're synonymously the best product out there that lasts the longest, no one will buy anything else because you'll have dummies like me on the internet who will be insanely vocal about your product and that has a lot of reach because when people ask you, oh, what's the best filter on the market? Well, it's, well <laughs> define best. Like, do you, do you like that, that filter that 
can be loud if the water level gets too low, but otherwise it has some nice quality life stuff. Or do you just want the the same filter since the 80s that's basically indestructible? But eventually you're going to have to replace an impeller or if your power goes out, it's probably not going to prime itself. Or it's a little stupid leveler that just barely friction sockets into the bottom is going to fall out eventually and you'll have to replace it. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can name, you can pick yeah, your, yeah. your poison or like, yeah, that canister filter is okay, but it has ugly black tubing or this canister filter is great, but it doesn't have trays for all of its media, but it has nice green tubing. So it hides the algae or this can, this canister filter has a heater built in and a pre-filter, but it has this it problems X, Y, Z, you know, oh, yeah. like that every one of them is like, well, they're about 60 to 70% good. And then 30 to 40%. Oh, we got to work on this. Yeah. Well, believe, believe me, I've, I've been in the conversation. I've been in the conversations <laughs> with these brands where, Oh, I know. You, know, it's you, just... you, you tell them, you tell them, Hey, here are some like really, you know, really solid changes you can make to this thing. Or, Hey, what about this particular type of product? What have you thought about this? Oh, that goes through the one guy that goes through the one, uh, the one VP of, uh, of new product introduction. And, uh, yeah, that guy, he's a real, he's a real tough nut to crack. So, uh, yeah, good luck on that. It's probably not going to happen. Well, all right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy to think that like my lofty goal is to create something so universally accessible and hopefully loved (laughs) hopefully i don't screw this up that it gives my professional background an opportunity to impact the industry because i work as a software and hardware test engineer my job is basically to break and exploit things for a living uh (laughs) and and to, to to represent customers whether that is uh you know the average user or whether that's a corporate person depending on what i'm working on to represent them and be their advocate to make a product as high quality as possible in their stead that is what my job is and if i could take what i do for a living and apply it more directly to the aquarium industry and potentially change the way that some of those companies think which is probably impossible because they're they're very antiquated in how they think but change how just one of them thinks it only takes one and once one starts to disrupt the industry the rest will fall in line because otherwise they risk falling so far behind they don't stand a chance anymore and and most of them can afford to fall in line they they just choose not to so that's the lofty hope can i can i change the aquarium industry first i'm going to start with the social level and help your general aquarist get an opportunity to do the things that they might not be able to do and then if somehow that gives me enough clout, which if Corey doesn't have enough, I probably never will. <laughs> to get enough clout, maybe just maybe have one of them go like, well, that guy does break stuff for a living. Maybe what he says is actually reasonable to look at. Yeah, I, I love it, Bentley. Man, you've got uh, you've got my full support. And, um, you know, anytime you want to come man. on and, and talk about uh, how you're making progress on this or um, and, you know, anything I can do to, to help kind of be a mouthpiece for, for the work that you're doing, you know, I might be able to get that. Uh, I could probably get up to advanced. 
I could probably get up to advanced horticulturist. You could get, you could get yeah. to master. And then once my kids, once they get uh, move out of the house, I could probably hit that expert or master level. But uh... what are you talking about? You just <laughs> you just teach the kids to trim the plants for you. Yeah, yeah. And do wanna, all the fertilizer. I want them to like the hobby. I don't want to push them away from the hobby. That's the they they just need to come in and do the feedings, have fun, and then bounce <laughs> out, and I'll do all the maintenance. You never know, dude. Like, is like for me, the 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 funniest thing to me is that I never have been very good at terrestrial plants with the exception of roses. And that's only because my mom basically beat me over head with a shovel until I knew better. That's it, an exaggeration, folks. My mother's a lovely person. I was but calling, the, I'm, I'm getting CPS ready right now, man. What are you talking about? <laughs> she, she, she's such like a lover of roses that she taught me and made sure I learned, but like everything else, I'm basically a black thumb. Like I, I'm, I, I have ridiculous weeds in my like garden in the front of my house. Uh, it, I can't, stop certain things to save my soul so basically it has to be bulletproof for a terrestrial plant for me to do well and yet when i started aquatic plants things just kind of fell into place and i just figured stuff out and then the the things that seemed tedious like trimming plants and you know planting things or uh, pulling up aerial column because you have to split them apart and replant every single one. Otherwise they can, they can get so bushy that they hurt themselves became very therapeutic and soothing. And it's something that I enjoy when I'm, I'm not like of, of messed up back. Like I am now. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Bentley. I like it, man. But yeah. Well, like I said, man, you have got uh, my full support on this. I am very, very excited. When do you think? Uh, what, what's your timeline? Let's let's leave with that. We've we've definitely sure. hit my one hour mark. So yeah, I, I I tried but, to talk way too much. So. No, it's, it's <laughs> that's awesome, man. I know uh, there, there's a lot of people out there that you know have messaged me directly and said, you know, love the podcast. One, um, first off, thanks to everybody that in my hiatus and in time away from the podcast reached out. And ask like, hey, are you doing okay? Is everything all right? You know, is everything good? It's like, oh yeah, no, everything's fine. I'm just you know busy with work and family. But you know, thank you so much for asking. It's it was it was kind of cool to get so many people uh, checking in to make sure that I was okay. You know, like I, I don't think I'd given any indication that anything wasn't okay. But it's still nice that people um, enjoy the podcast, enjoy hearing me ramble on with guests. Um, you know, and just kind of a, a medium for people to. Uh, share their experiences, talk about things that they're working on in the hobby. Um, yeah, so yeah, thanks to everybody that that did that. Um, but holy crap, where did I just go? I just lost my train of thought on that one. So you were, I think you wanted a, a timeline. Oh yes, an yes, estimated so, timeline. Yes, but thank so. you to all of the Aquarius podcast. Yeah, but listeners thank you. Yes, thank you for to, caring about Randy to all the listeners. Wow, how did I how did I get on that? Yeah, clearly it's, okay, it's late. It's you're late. Being it's so, all right. Maybe all I right. am a little bit rusty. I'm not even going to edit that out. We're just going to leave that in. Yeah. So what is, <laughs> what is your uh, what's your timeline, Bailey? When do you think you're going to have like a an alpha or a beta something out there where people sure. can actually sign up and start playing with this thing? So my initial estimate was that it would take me roughly six months from the start and the start was basically January. Um, so I am hoping June, uh, the current timeline as it looks and as it's standing from um, early planning phase and some initial talks with uh, my developer friends and, and one other person who is a subscriber of mine that volunteered to help as well. Um, I'm, it actually looks like we will probably have a initial code base um by the end of april 
That's awesome. And then from there, it's getting that um, integrated into right now. Part of the, the planning phase is figuring out whether it's best to do a website or a web app. Um, doing like phone apps would be something way down the line, just because those are slightly more complex for the the backgrounds that me and some of my friends that are uh, way too willing to help me than <laughs> they probably realize they're being. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, most of them owe me favor, so I'm leveraging those. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, one of them, I literally got him his current job. So, uh, yeah, he kind of owes me on that one. <laughs> but um, so probably early April, and then from there, it's just getting it integrated into whether it is a web page or a web app. And that'll probably take uh, into May. And then hope, I'm hoping that I can have a preview for a certain uh, set of people to kind of play and test at in May. And then an official launch would be in June. I got dibs on that, right? Uh, sure. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah, most of it is I, I just need a few people to like um, submit different photos off of different devices so if like if somebody's trying to submit a photo off of an iphone versus off of their desktop just to make sure that it it accepts those things and doesn't go completely haywire i mean most of this is fairly simple from a technological standpoint but uh, as somebody who works breaking things for a living i i know that no matter how simple it seems it's always complicated so for sure for sure yeah different browsers different operating systems all that fun stuff Right. There's, there's a lot of that too, that, uh, will be fun for whoever does the actual web coding. Uh, good luck to that person. (laughs) Last question. Have you, have you locked down your domain name yet? Yes. Okay. Is it something you can share? Can I put it in the show notes, even though it's not going to really be active or anything, but people can at least know. Not yet. Okay. Not yet. All right. But you've already locked it down though. You've done your GoDaddy. You own that sucker. Yeah. I've, I've paid my, my $14 or whatever it was, uh, for the .com. Because you know, technically, if it charges, it has to be a com. Mm. Uh, it, it's not. It's not right to do an org if you do that. But gotcha. gotcha. Also, and like, I'm not a nonprofit, so yeah. There's all those kind of rules, but it, it's a very simple name. It, it's very easy. Very cool. Bentley Bentley's Plant House. Is that what it's going to be called? Uh, no, not quite. Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> Although that's a good name. You should get that one. Uh, it won't. It won't involve my name at all. That way, if for some reason. Um, it needs to pass to someone else. It can. The goal is not necessarily to be uh, mine and mine alone. It's more to be a resource for Aquarius as a whole. Oh, so for sure. If it, for sure. If it does need to transfer, um, it can. And it, it's not like you know Bentley teaches you plants. Like no, but <laughs> something a little more generic that will feature me as the the head of the horticulture program. Yeah, good stuff, man. So, uh, yeah, I, mean, I guess whenever you do have that, I guess I can retroactively update this the show notes of this episode, or we'll just have sure. to we'll have to touch base in uh, in uh, May and June and, uh, and and talk about the uh, the progress that you've made, and hopefully, we'd be really close to a launch where we can uh, actually tell people so. and invite and and do a fun little podcast episode of just uh, you know kind of a launch celebration, if you will. Yeah, cool. uh, and the the first major sit down. So like the the game I'm working on launches early March, and then basically the weekend after the game launches is when I I sit down with my developer friends at a at a lunch with a, a conference table, 
and we start plotting things out for real. Mm. Uh, and then, and then I go, okay, you, you who are far better at code than I, I, I can code, but not as well as them go, go forth and, and let loose the hounds of hell, <laughs> you know, like do, do your work, my friends. And, and, and then I'll probably owe you some number of lunches or something. <laughs> All right, well, well, maybe you'll give me something else to share, all right? So I'll share your uh, your YouTube link in the show notes for people that aren't already subscribed to you. They need to go and uh, and subscribe to Mr. Bentley Pascal. That would, that would be lovely. But let's talk about Chira. So what if it, we don't have to talk about it, but uh, do you have a link to the game that you're launching? Can you share that with me so I can at least get people? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is awesome. – um, it's a, it's a, it's a family-friendly game. It's a little uh, arcade-style twin-stick shooter for those who are gamers. Uh, it is by Game Grotto Softworks, and the name of the game is Bots and the Robo Friends. It is currently visible on Steam for those of you who have Steam, and it will become available March sixth, so not very far from now. Awesome. Um, or at least that's the intended launch date. Hopefully, uh, timing works. <laughs> awesome. So shoot shoot me over that link, and I'll make sure I put that in the show definitely, notes along definitely. with your YouTube channel. And that way, people that were curious, like, what is this game that Bentley keeps talking about? I'm so curious. Now we can share that with them. Yeah, and there's um, I'll have some behind the scenes stuff very soon, showing like some of the work I'm actually doing on the game. Um, that'll be made available to uh, folks on my YouTube channel. Awesome. So if you wanna if you wanna see uh, me actually like doing sound design work and some voice acting, that will be made available because that's the parts that I am contributing to the video game. That's so awesome. So we we started with uh, not talking about fish and we'll end this episode. Not we'll end not fish. talking about fish. Yeah, it's pretty perfect for a fish podcast. I love it. I love it. Bentley <laughs> Pascal, man, we should uh, we should probably have you on more often than every uh, year and a half. Yeah, well, we'll so, figure something out, my friend. Can't believe it's been that long, man. This is crazy. This is uh, yeah, we're busy guys. What it is happens. this? Like, it, episode seventy six, I think this will be. I don't know. I've kind of lost track a little bit, but that'll be a lot. But all right, Bentley Pasco, man, great friend of the podcast. Thank you so much for your time, dude. I appreciate it. Thank you, Randy. You have a wonderful night, man.